Our text this morning is in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. That's our text. If you want to turn there or uh, get to it on your device, we also have various ways that you can uh, read along with the transcript uh, and uh, have that uh, on your device as well. The topic we're going to find, John is told that the mystery of God he had declared to the prophets will be finished. The title of our message, The Biblical Mystery Tour. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks this morning for uh, giving us a measure of health to be here. Some of us feel better than others, Lord, but we're all here together. We're the group of people that you saw before the foundation of the earth. Before worlds were formed and there was a universe, you understood that we would be here this morning. You love us that much. You care for us that much. We're a unique combination of individuals at a special time to hear the Word of God, uh, not from a man, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, as you would take the words that you had John penned so many years ago and inspire them to each heart as they're taught by virtue of our great teacher, the Spirit. And so, Lord, do a, do a wonderful work today. Uh, as always, Lord, we want to be changed and transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's really why we're here, so that when we leave, we will look more like Jesus, sound more like Jesus, listen more like Jesus, in every way be more like Jesus than when we came in. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. One benefit of getting a degree is showing off the letters after your name. We're all familiar with abbreviations like AA or BA or BS, MA, MS, MBA, PhD. Did you know that there are over 125 graduate and postgraduate degree abbreviations? And then you can get abbreviations after your name for other things, too. I was talking to Pat Mundy after first service. He said one time he pulled over a gentleman, and on his license it said his name, and then after it said R.B., and he said, well, RB, what does that stand for? And he said, registered barber. Uh, and so you, oh, I hope there's no barbers in the crowd today. You didn't see me laughing at that. Wow. I read an article about a Michigan man, Michael Nicholson, who in 2012, at the age of 71, had earned 29 degrees and was pursuing his 30th. Talk about a professional student. He has one bachelor degree, two associate degrees, 22 master's degrees, three specialist degrees like RB, and one doctorate. If you have neither the time nor the resources to earn a degree or two, you can visit this website, phonydiploma.com. I'm not joking. It's a real phony site where they'll issue you for a price not just a diploma from a recognized university, but a fake transcript. They even hypocritically offer both a master's and a doctorate degree in theology. That would be something. Where'd you get your degree in theology? <laughs> from phonydiplomas.com. How are they able to do it, people ask me. I go, I don't know, this is America. I guess you can do it until you're sued. There are genuine ministry degrees that you can earn from accredited schools such as MDiv, Master of Divinity, and DMIN, Doctor of Ministry. We sometimes joke about seminary here. We call it cemetery, but we have nothing against continuing education in general. It just seems sometimes kids go into seminary alive and on fire for Jesus Christ, and they come out changed, not in a good way, 
as if they've died to that enthusiasm, and so that's why we call it cemetery. Now, it might surprise you to learn that if you're a Christian, you already have at least two degrees. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, let a man so consider us, talking about Christians, he says, we are servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. And so you have an SC with an emphasis on SMG, servants of Christ with an emphasis on steward of the mysteries of God. Now, I was reminded of this verse because the word mystery is prominent in our text this morning. Verse 7 says, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Bible teachers always explain the use of the word mystery because it isn't used in the Bible the same way we commonly would use it today. A mystery in the New Testament sense is not something that cannot be understood, but is some plan or purpose of God that has been known to him from the beginning, but which he has withheld from the knowledge of men until the time came for him to reveal it. So a mystery in the Bible is something that God had concealed, which is now being revealed. The mystery and the mysteries of God will be our theme as we work through these verses. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're told that the mystery of God will be finished. And number two, you tell the mysteries of God until you're finished. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses one through seven about the mystery of God being finished. If you're a fan of 80s TV, you'll remember the classic line from the A-team, I love it when a plan comes together. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, God's plan comes together. We read in verse 7 that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. We can take a quick peek ahead at the sounding of the seventh angel to see exactly what mystery will be finished. Let me read it to you. It's from Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God's plan revealed progressively, one step at a time through the ages, by the prophets, comes together. Every mystery that has been revealed along the way culminates in the revelation of Jesus Christ reigning forever and ever. Why is Jesus Christ reigning a mystery? Well, it's a mystery because God has delayed the establishing of his reign for at least 6,000 years, 4,000 years counting from Adam to Jesus, and now 2,000 more years counting from Jesus to the present day. During the delay, other kingdoms have reigned on the earth. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, those are the kingdoms that are prominent in the Bible. Obviously, there have been other empires and kingdoms and world powers, uh, but not as far as the Bible is concerned in in, in direct flow with the nation of Israel. But the idea is that we don't really see Jesus Christ ruling and reigning the earth from Jerusalem. And it's a mystery as to why not. You're also told that the kingdoms of the earth are themselves ruled by Satan, who is titled by Jesus the ruler of this world. When Satan offered to give Jesus the kingdoms of this world in exchange for worship, Jesus didn't dispute Satan's claim to the kingdoms. It prompts non-believers to scoff and say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It prompts believers and non-believers alike to ask the why God questions about the wicked prospering while the righteous are suffering. And so the mystery of the kingdom of God. What was concealed, however, is now revealed. It is revealed in the pages of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that despite arguments to the contrary, God has been in charge all along. Through the delegated authority he has granted to the human governments God has raised up, and by his providence, he has, without violating man's free will, furthered history to accomplish his purposes to prepare for the forever reign of Jesus Christ. And so let's see that beginning in verse 1. It says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Revelation 9 leaves off with the sounding of the sixth of seven trumpets, which usher in the end of all things. Now, instead of the seventh trumpet being blown, we have another inter- interlude until Revelation eleven fifteen. And remember, the revelation is chronological if you follow the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Jesus has a scroll. He opens seven seals. The seventh seal reveals seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet reveals seven bowls. And so if you follow those, you have a chronology through the seven years of the tribulation. In between, God gives you important details to fill in your understanding. He tells you a little bit more about what's going on on the earth. This chapter through verse 14 of chapter 11 is a parenthesis describing events surrounding the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Some commentators believe this great person to be Jesus. It isn't. It's an angel. Because the word another, which qualifies angel, means another of the same kind as before. And in a little while, he will swear by the one who created heaven and earth, which is Jesus. So Jesus can't swear by himself. And so this is an angel. Why is he so much like Jesus in appearance? Clothed with a cloud, a rainbow on his head, his face like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire? Well, do you remember when Moses came down from meeting with God? He glowed. People looked at him and there was a radiance about him. Being in God's presence changed his countenance. This angel had been in the presence of Jesus, and as a result, he took on some of the characteristics of Jesus. Guess what? You take on the characteristics of Jesus, too, if you spend time with him. The Bible says we look into the Word of God, and it's a mirror through which we see Jesus dimly, but we are being changed from moment to moment, from glory to glory, becoming more like Him. And so the more time you spend with the Lord, the more you'll be like Him. It's like old couples who sort of, they start to look like each other and act like each other and finish each other's sentences. They just get more and more like one another. And the more you spend time with Jesus, the more you'll be like Jesus. Now... This rainbow, it might be a natural occurrence since he's clothed with a cloud. It also serves to remind you of God's covenant with mankind. God is keeping his promises. You remember the rainbow first came into effect after the flood when God promised he wouldn't destroy the world again by flood. And so it's a reminder that God is a promise-keeping God and especially necessary here in the tribulation when there'll come a time when it looks like all humanity is going to be destroyed, but the Lord has promised to finish What he started, his plan is coming together. And so verse 2, he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
What is this little book? Well, some say it is another name for the seven-sealed scroll now fully open. Some say it is the account John will give from this point forward. Some say it is the formerly sealed portion of the book of Daniel now open. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, there's a time when uh, Daniel is told to seal the book because it's for the time of the end, and so that's a possibility. Some say it is the angel's orders or his mission plan. Since the text nowhere says, we can't know for sure. It probably is not the seven-sealed scroll since an entirely different word is used to describe that. What we can say for sure is that it is the Word of God. All of the suggestions of what it is would agree with the statement, it's the Word of God. Now, the symbolism of setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land is that he was claiming the whole earth, land and sea for the Lord. In... uh, Subsequent chapters, you're going to see a beast and a false prophet rising from the land and out of the sea. And so this is letting you know that the Lord is sovereign over those things, that the earth is his uh, and everything in it. And, and so it's, an, it's a, making you aware of his claim upon the land and the sea. And he cried, verse 3, with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. We don't know what he cried with a loud voice, but since it is described like a lion's roar, we know it's a message of conquest and certain victory. A lion's roar is one of the loudest noises any animal on earth can make. It is so loud, it can be heard over five miles away from the lion. And if I heard a lion roar five miles away, I, I would just die right there. He wouldn't even have, I, can you imagine? You ever watch these nature shows? Can you imagine what it would be like to be torn up by a wild beast? This is why I'm afraid of all animals. All animals have it in for me. I have a one-pound kitten right now. She's thinking about how she can tear my eyeballs out. I don't know what it is. I, I literally am afraid of all animals. And Pam always, I've told you this before, Pam says, they can tell fear. I go, well, yeah, because I'm afraid. That's why they can tell If I could not be afraid, I would, but yeah, they're sensing my fear. A lion's roar. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, is coming as king. He'll rule his kingdom and none will be able to withstand him. It's why C.S. Lewis portrayed Jesus in the character of Aslan the lion in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis wrote, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Notice I put the little Canadian accent on so that it would rhyme. You can always tell people from Canada, they say again. Try and get people to say that word and you'll flush them out. It's like a shibboleth from the Old Testament. You'll know they're Canadians from Canada. (laughs) Anybody from Canada? All right, I'm all right. (laughs) Verse 4, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. We don't know exactly who or what are the seven thunders, nor do we know what they say. Even in this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of all things, some things remain unknown. Not knowing keeps you humble. If you think you know everything and have all of the answers, you'll have a tendency to get puffed up with pride. Not knowing some things keeps you humble as you must depend upon the Lord 
each step of the way. The Bible is an interesting book because I remember when I first got saved, I, uh, somebody gave me a companion book uh, by a guy named Paul Little, and the title of the book was Know What You Believe. And it's a really fascinating title because you believe in Jesus Christ. You've come to faith in, in Jesus Christ. You've been born again, but you don't really know what you believe until you study the Bible. And it's a lifelong process of seeing things, uh, not in a different way each time, but in a deeper way each time. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you're always going to be able to go deeper with the Lord and understand something that you didn't understand before in a deeper way, in a more meaningful way. And so uh, it keeps you humble. Not knowing keeps you moving. God has a plan for you, but the road can take some weird uh, twists and turns. If you knew some of the difficulties you faced, you might draw back. Not knowing keeps you trusting in God through each one. All of you can think of events in your life that if you had known about them ahead of time, you would have taken steps to avoid them. And God uh, keeps you in the dark so that he can take you into them and through them with his grace. It keeps you moving. It's better to know who rather than how or why. I love this verse from the Psalms, Psalms 103, verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his works to the children of Israel. Moses was intimate with God, and thus God revealed his ways, not just his works. It's one thing to know how God works. It's something else to know the thinking behind it, the mind behind it, the heart behind it, uh, the love behind it. It's always better to be intimate than merely to be instructed. And so back to Revelation, verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets." Now, we already looked ahead in chapter 11 and saw that the mystery being revealed is the consummation of God's plan with the forever reign of Jesus Christ. That there should be delay no longer ought to be highlighted with all the colors you have as well as underlined several times. As we survey the terrible plight of this world, the sheer volume of human suffering, man's inhumanity to man, the only firm hope is that it will be brought to an end by the return and the reign of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Here in these words, we are promised the time is coming when the delay will be over. The delay of the second coming of Jesus to rule and reign forever from that point forward. Why the delay at all? Well, I don't know if this is the reason why, but it's a perspective that we all have. We just don't always understand it. Since we believe and know God to be love, and we believe and know God to be good, we must also believe and know that His plan to save mankind after our original parents sinned was and is the best possible plan of redemption, the only way to save the human race. We must believe it is the only way for our holy yet merciful and forgiving God to solve the dilemma of creating a being with free will, risking disobedience, but then wooing them back to salvation. 
It's the only possible plan. And what's interesting, you can look at the other religions of the world, any of them, or any of the philosophies of the world, and see what their plan is. And they're all horribly deficient. There's nothing of grace in them. There's nothing of God's sacrifice for you in them. It's all about your works and your earning things. And you know if you're honest in your own heart, there's no way that you could ever make yourself good enough to stand before a holy God. So the world is full of failed and failing plans of salvation and of redemption and of trying to figure out what's wrong with the human race. And then you come to the Bible and you have God's unfolding drama of redemption. And all along the way, it speaks to your heart. It ministers to you. It it feeds your spirit. And you say, yes, that right there in the garden, God would say, you've sinned, but I'm coming and I will deal with your sin. I will take your place. The seed of the woman will deal with this. And then it's revealed over time exactly what that means, that God would take on human flesh, born of a woman, born of a Jewish woman at a certain point in history, that he would die on the cross, that he would rise from the dead, that he would come again. It's the only possible plan. It's the kind of thing that takes a few thousand years to work out. Now, to us, long time, lots of suffering. To God... A thousand years is as one day, one day is a thousand years. Not that God winks at our suffering or doesn't think that it's important. After all, as Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, he suffered in all points like as we did and do. But this is the plan as revealed in the Bible. It's a beautiful plan. It's a gracious plan. It's an amazing plan that preserves everything about God and everything about man. And it, it gets to the end when it all comes together with a being who has absolute free will and has exercised it to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to be loved by a God of love. There is no other way. And if you don't believe that, look at, as I said, any of the other ways. Most of you who are Christians, you've come out of some other way that was horribly deficient and didn't make any sense. On a more individual level, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. While we are sad about the delay, because so much human suffering is going on on a personal level, if God had not delayed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, you wouldn't be saved. But in his long suffering, he waited for you and he's waiting for others to get saved. The delay of the second coming of Jesus allowed most of us to become Christians and right up until the time the church is resurrected and raptured, it will allow millions of others to become Christians as well. Now I mentioned there were other mysteries involved in the mystery of Jesus forever reign or other mysteries revealed. We can take a quick tour of just a few of them. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. It is no mystery that God would reveal himself uh, 
by speaking, for example, from the heavens as he did on Mount Sinai, but that God should take on human form and live among his creation, that is a great mystery. In Colossians 1, 26 through 28, Paul speaks of another mystery which had been hid from the ages, which was then made manifest. He calls it the mystery of Christ in you. It is what we commonly call being born again. That this was a mystery can be seen in the reaction of Nicodemus when Jesus first mentioned it to him. He was startled. He was overwhelmed, unbelieving. He'd never heard of it before it was revealed by God to him. In his letter to the saints at Ephesus, Paul says that God, by revelation, made known to him the mystery which in other ages had not been known, that Gentiles be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel with the Jews. It was a revelation that God was going to take Jews and Gentiles and form of them a new body called the church. The church... What we are today is a mystery not known in the Old Testament. There were the people of God, Israel, and there were Gentiles. Now there is this new entity, the church, comprised of whosoever will believe in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, with no ethnic distinctions. That's a mystery revealed. The rapture of the church is a mystery revealed. Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Writing to the Romans, Paul says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own conceits. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The revelation of this mystery to Paul accounts for what otherwise would have remained mysterious, the miraculous survival of the Jewish people as a race while scattered among the nations. Today, when we see Israel in her ancient homeland, preserved for thousands of years as a distinct people group, having been scattered all over the world, you think, how did that happen? What's that all about? That's a mystery that has been revealed in Scripture. God will keep His promises to His people, and He will save them through the great tribulation. There are other mysteries, but I think you get the general drift. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by means of a plan no one could ever have begun to imagine. It culminates or comes together in the end with the Lord reigning forever and ever. Knowing this, you tell the mysteries of God until you're finished, verses 8 through 11. Now, a couple of guys in the Old Testament had to eat God's word, literally. Ezekiel was commanded to eat a scroll. And Jeremiah said he found God's words and he ate them. It's a simple illustration. You are to take in the word for yourself before you can give it out. In, then out. In, then out. Get it? (laughs) Ideally, we are to ingest God's word, be nourished by it, then grow in order to show others its power. It's like those ads for Nutrisystem. There's a before and after. The product has a sufficiency, but you want to see it have real results. If current spokesperson Marie Osmond says, eat Nutrisystem, and then looks just the same after she, as she did before, rather, or she looks worse, you're not going to be inclined to sign on. You want to see results. If God's word isn't changing us, people aren't going to want to sign on. They want to see results. John was a first century disciple called upon to reveal a mystery to the world. You are God's 21st century disciple who is called upon to reveal the mysteries of God to the world. 
In Matthew 13 and Luke 8, Jesus tells all his disciples that to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And then as we saw at the beginning of our study, 1 Corinthians 4.1, you are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We are ministers of mysteries. We are the mystery men. We are to share these things that have been concealed in the past but have now been revealed in Scripture with others. Verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. John had been transported in the Spirit to heaven. Now he was back on the earth. We live in both realms. We live in the earthly and in the heavenly. We are described in the Bible as seated in heavenly places with Jesus while we are simultaneously walking on the earth as ambassadors for Him, commissioned to tell about Him. So, as far as our position, we can understand that as saved individuals filled with the Holy Spirit, it's as if we're seated in the heavenly places already because we have immediate access to the throne of mercy and grace while we are physically on the earth walking as pilgrims and ambassadors. They're not two separate ways of living. The heavenly should dominate in terms of how we approach the earthly. And so we should be heavenly-minded. Some people say you're too heavenly-minded to do any earthly good, but only those who are heavenly-minded do earthly good. Verse 9, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. The Bible nourishes our spirit the way food nourishes our body. It's a very simple metaphor or analogy. Uh, All of us know that, but let's talk about it for just a minute. It's a good reminder. We need food to survive. The Bible is just as necessary to spiritual survival. In fact, if we take the word seriously, it's even more necessary than daily food. Job said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And so Job says, I need God's word more than I need food. It's not that you don't need food. Of course you do. But you don't need it ultimately as much as you need the word of God. When I was first saved, I heard a radio Bible teacher say, no Bible, no breakfast. And not in a legalistic way, not in a way to put a burden on me, but that made sense to me. If now as a a newborn Christian desiring the sincere milk of God's Word, if I didn't have time for God's Word that was going to strengthen and sustain me spiritually in a world dominated by the devil where there's a spiritual warfare going on, what am I doing having breakfast? I can eat a cold Pop-Tart while I'm listening to the radio, listening to a Bible study or something like that. I can't eat for a month all at once. Sometimes when I sit down to a bowl of spaghetti, I think it's like that. Gene and I can polish off a pound of spaghetti between the two of us. I love that stuff. I feel it later, but it doesn't matter. But you can't really eat for a month all at once. I can't eat once a week. I shouldn't eat one large meal daily. Nutritionists, in fact, tell you to eat several, as many as six small meals a day. But then you're always eating all the time. You're like a little bird. (laughs) Plus, they're never small meals. I just, I can't do it. Whatever your actual eating habits, I don't know what they are, compare your time in the Word of God to your actual eating habits, which would really be your priority. If if I was just following you along with a, a, a sheet and I saw 
you reading the Word of God, taking that in, and taking your food in, and all that, which would I say is your absolute priority? That's just something to think about. Verse 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. The description of the word as bittersweet surprises us at first, but it, God's word is always that way. John himself was experiencing the sweet joy of having Jesus revealed to him. Yet he was exiled on the island of Patmos, being persecuted for the word of God. So even before he ate this little book, he was already having a bittersweet experience getting revelations like crazy that were beautiful to behold, seeing Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the future unfold, seeing the plan come together while working in the salt mines as an old man exiled on the island of Patmos. The revelation itself is bittersweet. It's full of beasts and bulls and battles while simultaneously promising a blessing to everyone who reads it. Everything in it reveals God's mercy towards Christ-rejecting men but also his wrath against sin and his judgment upon it. All of God's servants in the Bible were called to this bitter, sweet experience. Therefore, you will be no exception. There are as many as 50 English versions of the Bible. I actually think there's a lot more than that. You probably know the more popular ones, such as the KJV, the King James Version, the NKJV, the New King James Version, the NIV, the Non-Inspired Version, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and the ESV, the English Standard Version. Obviously, the NIV is the uh, <laughs> New International Version. I'm sorry. I was, uh, I, it's a good Bible. Do you, if you read the NIV, I, it's okay. Star Trek fans often like to display their linguistic prowess by speaking, writing, and reading Klingon. So it only seems natural that a Klingon translation of the Bible would come into being. So there is a Klingon Bible. If you've ever wondered how to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in Klingon, it's quite simple. Dak, the talk, gahata, the mu, je, the mu, gahata, the je, joha, je, the mu, gahata, joha. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any Trekkies? You, you got to... You gotta... <laughs> Tell them your pastor's reading out of the Klingon version of the Bible. <laughs> and that they can come in uniform, too. So We should have went to a red shirt usher crew this morning, you know, with the little communicators and stuff. Regardless the Bible you use, we all, as God's living letters to the lost, are the BSV. We are the bittersweet version. Verse 11, he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. Somebody just texted me saying there's a disturbance in the force. Uh, it's a mixed metaphor, but I understand. You uh, must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. John had been told in verse 4 to seal up a portion of the revelation he was receiving. He may have thought his visions were coming to their end. Not at all. There was a lot more to come. We're only at the midpoint of the tribulation in these writings. 
We haven't met God's two witnesses or the Antichrist or his false prophet. We haven't seen the global cashless economic system we talk about or the attempt at a one-world government and religion. We haven't seen the rise and fall of mystery Babylon as both a city and a system. Most importantly, we haven't seen the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. Or the final disposition of the saved and the lost to heaven and to hell for all eternity. So there's a lot more revelation to come. You and I are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. I wouldn't go around claiming those titles. I personally don't. I should survey the crowd first. I personally don't like it when people use the titles after their name. You know, it, it's, it's kind of presumptuous. Um, I'd like to know more about my doctor and where he was or she was actually trained, but you can't ever ask those questions, can you? You're, they mark your chart. <laughs> Troublemaker. I'd just like to know if you, you know, you got a real degree. Yeah, sure. I'm a doctor. I'm the white coat here. But, you know, sometimes people... You know, they, and I understand. I mean, it costs you $20,000 to go to school for 10 minutes, so I mean, you want to have the degree at the end of your name and stuff. But uh, I, as far as Christians, I wouldn't go around claiming any titles. It's like that scene in the recent movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, where the hero says, There's one other name you might know me by Star Lord, to which his captor says, Who? And so just be a Christian. Just be becoming more like Jesus Christ. Let people ask you what's happening with your name. Simply serve the Lord by telling others about the mysteries once concealed, now revealed, about the incarnation of Jesus, His coming in human flesh to redeem mankind, about God living in those individuals by His Spirit, about Him building the church with living stones, those people who are born again during this dispensation, about His coming to resurrect and rapture those individuals, and about his preserving Israel as a distinct people that he will save through the coming tribulation, and then, of course, about the forever reign of Jesus Christ on earth, in heaven, in eternity. 